Hi, and welcome to Recovered, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. My name is Stephanie, and I am a recovered alcoholic on staff at the Magdalene House. Each week, I have the pleasure of conducting a live interview with an alcoholic woman in recovery for the participants who are currently in our Next Step program. Whether you're in recovery yourself, contemplating giving it a try, or just supporting someone who is, we are so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Good morning, podcast listeners and Next Step participants and graduates. My name is Stephanie Crawford, and I am the host here for this Recovered podcast where we interview recovered alcoholic women, and it is such a bright spot of my week. Every week, I get to the women that I already know. I get to know them better, and the women that I don't know, I would have never gotten to know them except for this podcast. So this morning, we have staff member Raquel um and so excited to have her on um if you guys haven't gotten to know her she's so kind and just has a sincere desire to be helpful and has been such I think a positive asset to the Maggie's community and um all of us at work so I'm going to turn it over to Raquel. She's going to give her name, her sobriety date, if she chooses to, and then she's going to give us a little bit of background about her alcoholism and what led her to get sober. Um, hi, my name is Raquel Tatum. I'm a grateful recovered alcoholic. My sobriety date is January 20th of 2017, and for that, I am truly grateful. Um, so do you want me just to give a little bit about my story and how I um, came to know the program and everything? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So my alcoholic journey began around the age of 15. I have drank um, with no control since the beginning. The first time I ever drank, I got completely drunk and um, I didn't black out because it was a night of my quinceanera. So I needed to stay somewhat um, okay enough to get through the night, but I did get drunk that night. And um, that's when I kind of fell in love with the effect produced by alcohol for such a long time. I was very um, unsure of like, you know, I didn't really felt like I fit in. I felt like I was crawling out of my skin. I suffered from anxiety from a young age and it was just hard for me to feel like myself. And it was hard for me to be myself and be confident and not insecure. And alcohol made me feel confident and it made me feel um, seen and heard and, So I kind of ran with it. And every time I could get alcohol, I grew up with pretty strict parents. So every time I could get alcohol, um, I would drink to extreme. Um, And then once I graduated high school, I uh, wanted to pursue college and realized that, you know, college is a big gateway for me to, to drink um, a lot. (laughs) And I joined a sorority when I got to college and, um, it gave me opportunity to go to more parties, to go to more social events, to find more reasons to drink. I was the one sorority sister that was pre-gaming, you know, before the pre-game at my house and then go to the pre-game and, you know, drink some more and then go to the party and drink some more and then find an after party and drink some more. And it was like, I always wanted the time to 
I always wanted those good times to be rolling. I was always the one saying, where are we going next? What's the next bar? Where's the next place? You know, is there going to be enough alcohol there? And eventually it got to the point where I, um, that's all I ever wanted to do. School was just my gateway to get, um, to get drunk all the time. I stopped showing up to classes. I stopped, you know, doing what I needed to do. I wasn't able to focus on my schoolwork and I would just, it got to the point where my parents started because my parents were paying for my school at this point and they were starting to notice something was wrong with me. And um, this was around the age of 17 going on 18. They started noticing that I was not okay. Um, I would come home not looking good, not feeling good from school. So they're like, okay, we're going to go ahead and pick you up and drop you off every day. We're not going to let you drive. And I said, okay, fine. And they dropped me off at 9 a.m. I'd watch them drive away. I'd wave my hand to them. And then I'd walk to the corner store and grab whatever I needed to grab. Or I'd go um, to a friend's house across the street and go drink there all day until 9 p.m. when my parents would pick me up. Um, I wouldn't go to class. I wouldn't do anything. And then eventually my sorority got pretty fed up with my behavior and my drinking and asked me to resign or they were going to kick me out. So um, I ended up resigning from my sorority. um, And I was like, oh, it's fine. Like, I don't need them. You know, (laughs) I can, I still have all these friends and I'm, you know, I, I don't need to be in a sorority anymore. So I thought, okay, well, maybe now, like, my drinking will kind of calm down a little bit, but it was a complete opposite of that. Um, if anything, it got completely worse. Like, you know, the book says this is a progressive illness and it only gets worse. And I was about 19 when I started really suffering from um, mental health issues and my drinking definitely did not help. And it was uh, really difficult for me to be out in public, be in social settings, um, be with a large group of people and going to a great college. I just couldn't, I just couldn't be around people without being drunk. Um, I needed alcohol to be my mask for me. I needed alcohol to give me the confidence to be around people and to talk to people and to raise my hand in class. And alcohol did that for me. I, got to the point where I just couldn't go to school anymore. I just was completely um, began to isolate and completely began to push people away. I started telling my parents that I think I'm not going to do school anymore. I think I'm going to um, just work and take a year off or something. And they were like, okay, like whatever you need. I have great parents. My parents have always been awesome supporters. They've always been there for me. And um, I'm so grateful to still have them in my life today, but I'll get to that soon. And um, so I um, decided to drop out of college and my drinking didn't suffice. I kept drinking too extreme. And um, then eventually my, men- my mental health and my physical health started declining. I got really, really severe anemia um, to the point where my doctor was like, we need to get you to the hospital right now. Um, 
And this whole time I was drinking throughout going through all the treatments and going through everything to all the doctor's appointments. I was drinking the whole time. And again, I was isolating, pushing people away. I wasn't letting my parents come with me to my doctor's appointments. I wasn't letting them know what was going on with me. And at this point I was living with them and didn't, wasn't going to school, had a job, but my job wasn't really, um, I wasn't really performing well. I was one of the I was like in like a probation period, I guess, because my performance was really bad because I was drunk the whole time and try to hide it as best as I could, but I'm pretty sure they knew. And so I'm around 20 at this point and my goals are starting to disappear. You know, school that's gone, you know, me having a career that's gone, you know, me having any sort of goals for the future was gone. All I cared about was getting the next drink and Around this time, I was really um, struggling with getting out of bed in the morning without having alcohol. I was struggling not having, I was, I was alcohol, I was mostly beer and wine. Um, so I always had wine in my purse. You know, I was one of those people that just had it around all the time. I had stacks of beer stocked in my closet. I just lived out of my room for a long time because I said I was isolating and um, my grandma you know when it got to when it got really bad it would get to the point where I wouldn't leave my room at all I would just stay in my room and drink all day and my grandmother who lived with my parents and me would come into my room and bring me food so I ate that day you know it, it it was just like it was just not a pretty picture I was not living life like I was just existing. I had no purpose. I was not useful to anybody or had use for anything. Like I was just, you know, just there, um, drunk. And then my first detox came around and um, I went to a psych ward near my parents' house. The first time I did detox, it was okay. Um, I wasn't like shaking. I never really got the shakes. I just got really bad withdrawal symptoms, like, you know, the basic stuff, but I went to detox the first time and then I thought I was going to stay sober after. And eventually if I only lasted a couple of days before I drank again. And then within a year time frame, I went to that same psych ward three times. And this is where my story with my story with the program really starts. So My third time in the psych ward, my caseworker comes up to me. And at this point, I have already experienced, um, I had experienced alcohol poisoning, which is not something I recommend. It was horrible. Um, It was probably one of my, um, one of my step one, true step one experience was alcohol poisoning. Um, Yeah. So I woke up one morning and um, I was just burning up and I couldn't even hold water down. I was trying to figure out what was wrong with me because the night before I went to a bunch of different bars and I was just burning up. And um, the person I was dating at the time was like, we should just get you to the hospital. You know, you're not looking good. You're not feeling good. You can't even hold water down. And they rushed me to the hospital. And I just remember getting out of his car to the ER and I literally couldn't walk. I literally was like crawling, (laughs) pretty much crawling to the front desk. And I was just so like, I was blacking out in and out of his car. 
you know, I, I just, my throat was on fire and I just didn't understand what was happening and turned out I had alcohol poisoning. And I was in the hospital for about two days, hospitalized for alcohol poisoning and fed up with me. Um, they were kind of like mad at me that I, that happened. And my my dad came to the hospital and pretty much just yelled at me and then left. And he brought, dropped off my car in the hospital parking lot. And I finally got out and I had, you know, I had all my stuff in a bag. I had my, my hospital wristband on, you know, and I sit in my car and I'm still really nauseous. And the first thing I can think about is getting the next drink. And I go to the closest store I can find and I buy alcohol. And as I'm grabbing the alcohol with my hand, I look at my medical wristband and I'm holding on to the bottle and I'm wondering, I think to myself, this is not normal. Like I just got out of the hospital for drinking and here I am grabbing another drink. Like something is wrong with me. And that was the first time the switch in my head went off that my drinking was not like everybody else's. Um, So so that happened at this point. Back to the psych ward, my caseworker, who was my social worker there, um, came up to me and she's like, Raquel, every time you come back in here, you get worse and worse. Your rap sheet gets longer and longer. Your diagnosis gets longer and longer. You look like crap. You know, have you thought about doing something long-term because the other two times I did detox, I only stayed three to five days each. And after both times, I just, I just went back out and drank. I didn't stay sober very long. The longest I stayed sober after was like two days. And that was the first time because I was so scared and so sick. And I said, long-term, what does long-term mean? And she's like, well, have you thought about doing treatment? And I said, there's no way I'm doing treatment. I don't need that. That's for crazy people, like (laughs) people with a problem. I don't have a problem. My problem's not mental health. It's not alcohol. Alcohol is, you know, what keeps me going. I'm not going to quit drinking alcohol. And then eventually she brought in my parents and they sat me down and um, had a bunch of brochures for a bunch of places And my parents were just looking at me and they just looked me directly in the eye and said, Raquel, do you really want to continue living like this? I mean, you're living out of your room. You have beer in your closet. You know, you just were hospitalized. You've been here three, two other times. Like, what is it going to take for you to want to make a change? And they're like, do you really want to continue living like this? And I really looked at me and my mom didn't have the best relationship at this point. And the fact that my mom actually showed up and came and cared still was said a lot. So, um, I looked at her and I said, okay, like I'll do it, you know? And, um, I agreed to do a 30 day inpatient facility, um, outside North of San Antonio. And, um, that's where my journey with alcohol began. And then just really quick before I, I, I close with that, um, after that happened, um, that wasn't really the end of it all. Um, my parents were planning on driving me down because I'm from McAllen, Texas. I'm from South Texas and San Antonio is pretty far. So um, my parents were planning on taking some days off work to drive me there. They, it, I had my bags packed in my room. I was ready to go. We're just waiting for the call and you know, waiting for my dad to be like, okay, like we're leaving, we're going. And um, that day hadn't came and it had been about two weeks since I got out of detox facility. I was still drinking. I was still in my room, isolating, drinking, and the treatment center called my mom 
and asked my mom, you know, when can we expect her? How is she doing? And my mom talked to them and then they wanted to talk to me and they talked to me and I, they asked me, you know, Raquel, how are you doing? I said, honestly, I feel like I'm about to die. I'm not doing okay. I don't feel well. You know, I'm drinking myself to death. I'm just stuck in my room. I have I have nowhere to go. I have no one to talk to. You know, I'm just in complete and utter misery. And then she passes a phone back to my mom and my mom hangs up the phone and says, they just emailed me your plane ticket. I'm taking you to the airport right now. And at that point, I wasn't able to say bye to my dad, to my grandparents, to my um, partner at the time. You know, I just left bags pack left and the last person I had to see was my mom's face which was a person I did not care to see then yeah I get on a plane I'm drinking at the airport bar every time I have a stop and um, I get to treatment and right before then right before I left to treatment I had gotten arrested so I had legal consequences as well and um, that I was drinking while it was happening but so I had a lot of stuff on my mind when I left to treatment I had a lot of things that I Um, a lot of wreckage and chaos that I caused in my life and in my family's lives. And I got on that plane, first time I've ever been on a plane (laughs) and it was to go to treatment. And um, yeah, I got to treatment and I don't know if you want me to go from there or. I think that's a good stopping point. Thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. Did you want to be sober? At first, no. Like I said, I I tried before going to detox and tried to stay sober after, and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it on my own. Um, So when did the change come from like going because you had to, to staying because you wanted to? In treatment, it took me a couple weeks to admit I was even an alcoholic. But once I did, I wholeheartedly accepted it and knew it to my, I knew it in my bones that I was an alcoholic after I came to accept it. And that's because of the people that would come in and do H&Is and share their story and the people I would talk to in treatment that had been in there before and um, just listening and reading the book and relating to what it had to say. It made me realize that I am an alcoholic and that I do have a problem. That's when I knew I wanted to be sober for me because I came to the realization that I have a disease that causes me to drink to extremes and um, I didn't want to live like that anymore so yeah do you have alcoholism in your family I do uh my uncle on my my dad's brother and then my mom's um my mom's brother-in-law but nothing like not like my parents aren't alcoholics but um, I do have a couple in the family, yeah. But it is, yeah, but it is in the family. Did you, was the treatment center you went to, was that 12-step based? Is that where you learned the books yes. and everything? Yes. Or did that I'm come very, after? No, I'm very grateful um, that I went to a 12-step based treatment center. Um, that's where they gave me a copy of the big book and I still have that copy. <laughs> it's pretty uh, worn down, but I still have it and um, that's where they introduced me to the 12 steps. So, Awesome. One of the things I do want us to talk about a little bit is being miserable in sobriety, uh, because I know that there's people who might listen to this who are maybe miserable themselves right now and think that 
they're the only one or that there's something wrong with them because they're supposed to be happy, joyous and free all the time. And, but I know that you have experience in that area and you also have experience of getting out of that. So do you just mind talking about that? Yeah, I think it's really important because when I, when I first came into the program, I thought, you know, if I'm not going to drink anymore, then my life is going to be so easy now. You know, that was a thought I had in my head that everything's just going to fall into place and everything's going to be great. And alcohol, you know, it's no longer going to be part of my life. So my life's going to be easy and everything's going to be great. But in reality, you know, life still happens. Things still happen. And um, for me, whenever I, I've been miserable in sobriety about twice, that I can recall. And the first time I was miserable in sobriety, I was nine months sober. I remember specifically I was nine months sober. The reason, the main reason why I felt like I was so miserable was because I was focusing on all of my externals and not on my internal condition, you know, on paper, on the outside, it looked like I had everything together. I had a bunch of service commitments and service positions. I was chairing meetings. I was sponsoring. I was carrying the message. I was doing everything on paper, right? But at the end of the day, I wasn't praying and meditating. I wasn't seeking God. You know, I wasn't focusing on my internal condition. I, um, I was doing everything I thought I needed to do for my program externally, but I forgot the purpose of it. And that's to remain in conscious contact with the higher power. And that's what I was lacking. I was lacking to um, expand my spiritual life. So I was sitting on my bedroom floor and I was managing a sober home at this point. I was an authority figure. I was a leader at, at this point. And I was sitting on my bedroom floor and crying trying to figure out why I'm so unhappy. And it was because I was taking control. I was playing God. I was the one that was calling the shots and making all the decisions and thinking that I needed to control everything and everyone around me. And that leads to nothing but misery and depression for me when I'm not seeking God and not relying on God and not putting faith in God and trusting God. Um, so I'm crying on my bedroom floor, trying to figure out what I need to do. And something just clicked in my head that maybe it's time I need a new experience with the steps. So I got a new sponsor. I went through the work again. It's my second time going through the work at that point. And, um, I, um, dropped off some of my commitments. I kind of dialed it down when it came to all the external stuff. And I just stick to one home group you know, to one service commitment and to sponsoring X amount of women. And I kind of had to find that balance. And that's the word I'd like to use is the word balance, because I have to find the balance between, you know, what I'm doing on the outside and how I'm taking care of my internal condition. You know, it has to be a good balance. So that was the first time. And then the second time was um, when I was, when I put work in front of my recovery. I was working at a law firm, immigration law firm for two years, and I had just moved to Dallas. So I didn't really know anybody. I didn't have a sponsor yet. You know, I didn't have a home group yet. I left where I got sober um, and which is Kerrville. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but um, I got sober in Kerrville, Texas, and I left my bubble and I came to Dallas, this big, wide you know, big, huge recovery community. And I didn't know where to start. So I just didn't, I just didn't start. I didn't find a sponsor. I didn't find a home group. I just focused on my job, 
and it was my job in school because I'm also in school. I found myself just not being completely disconnected from my program, of course, not being completely disconnected from my higher power, running the show again, playing God again, you know, being the actor, being the director, being the principal. And I realized that maybe I told myself, maybe I don't need to work the 12-step program anymore. Maybe this is my time to live a normal life, <laughs> thinking that I'm normal. <laughs> and um, I that idea scared me. That idea of maybe I don't need this scared me. And I knew at that point that I was, you know, at risk of relapsing. And I did not want to do that because at this point I had a little over three years, maybe four years. Um, so I was like, I do not want that to happen. But of course, that's not up to me. Um, so I decided to get a sponsor, find a home group and work the steps again. <laughs> and that's what I did. And that's what helped me get out of out of that out of that uh, misery and depression. So it's just really, it was just about taking action and not sitting in my stuff, you know, not being um, sitting duck and putting my footwork in and putting action behind what I was gonna, what I said. If you or someone you know is a woman who wants to sustain and grow in her recovery, check out our three month non-residential program Next Step offers community structure and accountability to any alcoholic woman at absolutely no cost. Everything we do in Next Step, from the assignments to the accountability group, is to help alcoholic women not only stay sober, but thrive in her recovery. Because we have both in-person and virtual options, we can help women from all over the world. To call into a phone screen to see if you qualify, call 214-764-0793, extension 500. Now, I related so much to that first part. I went through like year two, I kind of went through some depression spells. And I, what I think it was, honestly, was I was like taking on so much external, like you said. And on the outside, I looked like, you know, I was doing the deal, which I was on the outside, but I wasn't bringing God into it. And I wasn't practicing step 11. So what would happen is I would get to a point where I would totally burn out or, you know, cause I wasn't sleeping and all this other stuff. Cause I was constantly doing stuff and then I would get super depressed. And then the one thing that would get me out of bed that day was a meeting with the sponsee. And I can honestly say that since I've been diligent in step, in step 10 and 11, I haven't had that happen where I just burn out completely because I'm doing too much external stuff. Mm-hmm. so I just related so much to what to what you said I was like nodding my head along because that's totally <laughs> totally me well I wanted to talk to you about too because you mentioned your parents and that we would get into that relationship with them later and I know we also talked about expectations on amends so can you talk about the relationship with your parents and the amends process with your parents and what the relationship is like with them today yeah I was actually talking to them on the phone last night. I was telling them that um, that I was going to do a podcast today and that I would send them the link when it's done. So I think they'll be excited to hear that I'm talking about them. (laughs) But yeah, um, I grew up an only child for 15 years. 
So me and my parents are very close. Um, my mom had my sister at 39. So we have a 15 year age gap. So me and my parents are really close growing up and, um, I'm a big daddy's girl. I will admit that. (laughs) And, um, one thing that I will say is that my parents, you know, being the parent to an alcoholic, I will never know what that's like. Um, I feel like my parents did the best they could with what they knew with me at the time because they were scared. They did not know what was going on with me. They did not know what to do with me. You know, all they knew was to let me go to the psych ward, but that's it. And then, you know, they got guidance from the social worker about treatment, which they were totally for. I mean, they're, they've just always been there for me. And I know that's not a lot of people's story. And I'm so, so grateful that my parents always stuck around and are always willing to help even till today. You know, sometimes I just need to call up mom and dad and ask for advice or just hear their voice. But um, I'm so lucky to have their support. But I will say that they were big enablers when I was drinking. Um, I was, and to, you know, full disclosure, I was a huge manipulator. You know, I was so used to manipulating them all the time. I mean, it was easy for them to say it was easy for me to get them to do what I wanted them to do or to give me what I wanted them to give me. And sometimes they knew what it was for and they just didn't know how to say no to me. You know what I mean? Um, but they tra- they did the best they could with what they had at the time. You know, that's all I can say. And I'm I'm just so grateful for them. And our relationship today is great. The immense process with my parents was interesting. Um since I, since me and my dad are really close, I, um, I thought our amends was going to be all mushy and, <laughs> you know, a bunch of crying and sobbing and stuff. But in reality, it was actually really, um, it was very like, we didn't cry. It was very like direct and very like deep, but it was just like having a conversation and, um, it went really well with my dad. He didn't cry, which I was very surprised because he's a big crier you know, he just told me to keep doing what I was doing and that he was proud of me. And then when it came to my mom, I had a big resentment towards my mom. She was the first person I did amend. I did um, resentment inventory on when I first went through the steps, a very long list with my mom. It, that's the one that turned out to be actually really emotional. And we were sobbing and crying. And, you know, I was telling her that, she wasn't really uh, around a lot during my childhood because she had to work to provide for the family, which now as an adult, I understand, but as a child, you know, you just want your mom around your mom. You want your mom to come to your soccer games and come to your talent shows and stuff like that. And, you know, my mom unfortunately was not able to do those things. And I told her, you know, I understand now, like, I understand that you were doing the best you could with what you had at the time. And I forgive you for that. Like, um, you know, I, I'm able this program has been able to help me get out of myself and put myself in someone else's shoes and somehow relate or somehow be understanding and considerate, aware that the world doesn't revolve around me and that there's other people too that have feelings that go through things just like I do. And just because I idolize them as a parent doesn't make them any less human. Um, and it went really well. And it was one of probably my fa- most favorite amends with my mom. But yeah, so me and my parents' relationship is great today. I'm able to, you know, they're, they don't worry about me anymore. I mean, of course they worry about me because I'm their kid, but, you know, they don't worry about me anymore. And they know I'm doing good and they're proud of me and they're happy for me. And 
you know, every time I call them, it's not, what do you want, Raquel? It's, how are you doing? You know what I mean? So, yeah. That's wonderful. Do they know that you got drunk for the first time at your quinceanera? <laughs> no, but they will know now. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Okay. Um, keeping on the topic of amends, and I just had a sponsor you make amends to um, an ex-boyfriend recently, and she was so just bummed out about the way that it turned out um because she had expectations like we do sometimes and so I anything like I think your story could help her if she ever listens to this but I'm sure it's going to help so many other people who have put expectations on a man so can you tell the story about that boyfriend yes um it was the first round of amends I had done and I went back home to my hometown to make some amends. I made the trip from Kerrville back to McAllen to make amends. And there's an ex-boyfriend that I owed amends to because I was just a horrible girlfriend. I had expectations going in thinking me and him were super close. You know, we were great friends before we even dated. You know, he's totally going to understand and be happy for me like everyone else I did amends to recently. And we're sitting in my parents' garage and... um, he comes over and I can tell that he's just very like stone, like, like a guard is up. You know what I mean? You know, I do my men's and he kind of leans back and crosses his arms and he's like, no, he said, just because you're sober doesn't mean what you did to me was okay. Doesn't make it okay. Doesn't make me feel any better. And um, that was the first time someone actually gave it to me straight. And someone actually, you know, gave me a different response than, oh, you know, that's great for you. Like, keep doing what you're doing. I'm proud of you. Um, And I was really caught off guard and I got kind of angry a little bit. (laughs) And I was like, I'm over here, you know, of course, I'm being, you know, stuck in pride and ego. And I'm like, how dare you like not take my amends? (laughs) But that just showed me that not all my amends are going to go the way I plan, you know, Some of them are going to be the exact opposite of what I thought it was going to be. And some of them are going to go the way I think they're going to go. But most of the time, it's it's the complete opposite of what I think it's going to happen. And the best thing I tell people is, you know, don't put expectations on amends. Just go clean up your side of the street, you know, admit to your faults and whatever happens, happens. But, you know, just be glad that you're able to make the approach and make the amends. And that's all you can do. So, yeah, that was not a pleasant experience for sure, but it did open my eyes a lot to how different amends can go and how all of them aren't always going to be happy and um, supportive. Right. Did he say like what you could do to make it right or anything like that? I don't think he gave me anything. I think he just wanted to be done with it and just not talk to me anymore at that point. And I've had people reject me for amends too. I've had other people I've tried to reach out to, um, to make amends to, and, um, they're like, no, I don't want to talk to you. And I had to be like, okay, like I have to accept that. Yeah. Same. Absolutely. So you moved to Dallas. How was your life in recovery in Dallas compared to how it was in Kerrville? Oh my God. That's a great question. Well, in Kerrville, you know, it's a very small 
tight-knit community of recovery and recovery is on every corner, you know. Um, wow, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> um, but the thing about Dallas is um, it's so big book based here. It's like everything is out of the book. You know, the way people work the steps is straight the way the book says, you know, it, it's very different for me. Like the way I work the steps the first time and the way I worked the steps this last time since I've been in Dallas were completely different. Really? And yes. And I How think, so? um, just, uh, just like assignments instead of like my one, two, and three, I got assignments to do. Whereas when I did steps one, two, and three with my sponsor, it was more us talking about it and just, I think it's honestly just, um, just different recovery, um, you know, recovery is different, um, in different places. And I think that's okay. But at the same time, it's like, for me and my recovery, I need to work out of the big book of, uh, the big book and I need to work a 12 step program. But I would say that the greatest thing that I could have ever gotten was, um, my relationship with my higher power. And I feel like my relationship with my higher power in Dallas is a lot stronger than it was when I was in Kerrville. Um, today, I'm able to live in less fear. I'm able to be of use to other people. Um, I have a new purpose, which is to help other alcoholic women. And that's been my purpose for a long time, but I feel like it has a different meaning now, um, now that I do have a closer connection with my higher power and no longer running the show no longer playing God. And of course I'm not perfect. I'm going to play God. There's going to be times where I want to run the show and I want to take control, but at least I'm able to become aware of it and ask God to remove it. But yeah, I think my connection with my higher power has grown tremendously and working the steps out of the big book as a big book intended it are the two main differences. That's awesome. Uh, how is your relationship with your higher power today? Like, what do you do to seek? What do you do to build that relationship? Like, what does that look like? So I pray and meditate, of course. I meditated right before this meeting. <laughs> um, and I like to read on awakening. Um, I also still like to do nightlies. I seek God by praying. And that's just, I, I just keep it simple. I seek God by praying. And there'll be times throughout the day where I find myself being unwilling to do something or in fear about something. And I just pray and ask God to please remove this fear. God, please help me be your vessel. Please help me carry your message and thy will be done, not mine. You know, just constant prayer and hitting my knees is definitely important. That's something my sponsor really encourages me to do is hit my knees and do the third step prayer, which is something that I could do better. <laughs> but like, again, it's not a program of perfection. Um, but yeah, um, that's really it. I just pray and meditate and ask God to remove things and hit my knees when I need to. And I also see God in other people. And sometimes when I'm waiting for some sort of sign or answer from God, sometimes it comes through through people. And that's mm -hmm. God there too. So mm -hmm. he's everywhere. <laughs> and my conception is very, um, I don't have like a set name I don't know what it looks like what it feels like what it anything I don't it's uh, all I know is that it's kept me sober this long and that's all that matters and I laid aside prejudice and I opened my mind up to willingness and that was enough to get me conscious contact with him mm, that was lovely 
real quick, you know, I remember, and I'm, I'm thinking about the ladies, the next set participants that are on this call. Cause I remember whenever you first started, you were kind of thrown into chairing a meeting and not like just chairing a meeting, but chairing a Maggie's meeting, which I think is more of like a recovery lecture style instead of like a meeting. And you were really nervous. Do you mind like just sharing how, because I think it's important for the women to hear that even at four years sober, you being a staff member, you got super nervous because they have to do it and they get super nervous. So do you just mind sharing like your experience, strength and hope and how you walked through that and all of, all of that? Yes, honestly, it was a big, a big, uh, I don't want to say issue, but I guess, I guess the word issue um, is a big issue for me because all it was talking to my sponsor and praying and meditating about it. All it was is that I'm just in fear in fear that I'm not adequate enough in fear that my recovery isn't strong enough in fear that I'm just not good enough as a person. You know, I have a lot of insecurities. I'm comparing myself to other people. Well, I'll never be as good as her or I'll never cheer as good as she does. And it's just a lot of fear around, around that. And I have to remember that my experience is my greatest asset today. You know, I am able to use my experience to help other people today. And that is a bright spot in my life. And I have to remember that God puts me in positions for a reason. And I have to remember that if he wants me in a certain place, if he wants me doing a certain thing, it's going to happen. And that's God's will, not mine. And the best advice I could give is just be confident in your recovery, understand that you're worthy, understand that your recovery and your experience is enough. And if you need more direction, get with your sponsor about it, you know, but you're enough. I mean, your experience will help somebody. It really will. And you really have to believe that wholeheartedly. And um, I really had to pray, meditate a lot about the fear around chairing. And I still get in fear these days too, but I have to remember, you know, the book says we don't, we don't want to live in fear. We were, we're going to be reborn. You know, I didn't come into this program to live in fear. I didn't come into this program to be miserable. You know, I came into this program to be happy, joyous, and free. And me falling back into those defects, me falling back into those behaviors isn't going to help anybody. And it's not going to make me useful. So here's a good example of me sharing that experience to help somebody else thinking that, how am I going to help somebody by being fear about something? Well, here you go. I mean, here's a good example of how I can use that to help somebody else. So if you're yeah. in fear, just pray, 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 ask for direction. Um, speak with your sponsor. If you need 10 step, if you're in fear, if anything like that. And um, also just remember that your experience isn't up to help somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think that is kind of like a normal thing too, because whenever I first started working at Maggie's, I got in a lot of fear and was doing the same thing, like comparing myself, thinking I'm inadequate and all like everything that you just said, like it's totally me. And my sponsor said something to me that kind of like changed my mind and like blew me away. And she was like, she said, if you're comparing yourself, you're either less than or better than, and there's no humility in that. And there's no God in that. And I was like, Oh my God, like that's so selfish of me. Right. And so, and so like, it just totally 
changed the game for me on, yeah, on that, my, comparing my myself to others. Me, um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Something my no, son told me was, don't compare people's externals with their internals. You have no idea what that person is going through, mm-hmm. which is totally yeah. true. Totally. Absolutely. For sure. Okay, my dear. Well, we are getting to the top of the hour. So I would just like first, what do you feel like? First of all, what's your life like in Dallas today? Oh, it's great. I love Dallas. I love the big city. I love everything. Um, There's everything you could ever think of finding is here. (laughs) But uh, my life is great today. You know, I work at Maggie's, which is an amazing opportunity. I love working there. Um, I live with my husband and my brother-in-law. I have two dogs and two cats and I'm in school right now for social work, believe it or not. Um, because that social worker in, um, in the psych ward, believe it or not changed my life. And Mm -hmm. I could never repay her enough for what she did for me and my family. And I would love to be someone that does the same thing for somebody else. So that's why I I decided to pursue social work and pass it forward. Um, so I'm in school. Yeah, I got a little emotional. Sorry. Um, but no, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. Yes. It's something that I'm passionate about and that, you know, I want to make a difference, not just in recovery, but in other ways too, you know, I'm, I'm able to be useful in all sorts of ways today. But yeah, my life is great today. I mean, working at Maggie's, you know, having a home, having pets, having responsibilities, of course, can get overwhelming. And but I'm grateful that the problems I have today are nothing compared to the problems I had when I was drinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Your problems have been upgraded, as I've, as I've heard said before. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah. So for my final question, my final question is if you could leave us with one takeaway um, like if somebody listening was only going to hear this one part of the podcast and you could say and you only had one thing to say to them as far as getting sober or staying sober whatever the case may be what would that one takeaway that you'd want to leave them with um i would say being honest being open-minded and being willing are key aspects about this program. For me, that's how I've been able to stay sober. That's how I've been able to be useful to others. That's how I've been able to take suggestion and take direction from my sponsor. That's how I've been able to use my experience to help somebody else. If I didn't have those three things, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be alive Mm -hmm. today. You're talking to me. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. You have such a great story and so many good experiences to share. And I just appreciate you coming on and for me getting to know you better and and sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us this morning. So um, I I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenhouse.org.